This episode is brought to you by Zeratech Software Development. Are you a company whose commitment to excellence demands effective software tools? Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help build or enhance your technological systems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. You can find them at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Hey guys. Today I sat down and talked to Larry Langton. Larry was a history professor at Michigan Tech for many years. Uh, He has written some awesome local history books about mining, its early days, uh, how mining people lived in those early days and how they settled this area. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. We also talked later about his process in writing, what it's meant for him. Uh, Also the automobile and what that has meant for him and how that's tying into a current project that he has. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. I hope you guys do as well. Welcome to the Obsessed Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Herkus. In this podcast, we get to meet and hear from folks who are obsessed with a wide array of interesting endeavors. We dive into some awesome stories and look at the mindsets and the psychology of those who are obsessed. Let's go. Hello, Larry. Thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here. Yeah. Here to talk about history, right? Uh, as it as it pertains to local history, but I'm curious about your trajectory into that world. My introduction is your books, some of the QNA local history books, uh, right. but obviously there's a, a lifetime that happened before that as well. And right. I'm curious what what how you got to that point. What's your history path? How did you get into that whole world? Uh, kind of via a strange way, actually. I was born in Jackson, Michigan. My dad was a tool and die maker. Um, and he worked for a manufacturing company, and I always thought I wanted to be an engineer. Okay. Um, he died, and then we moved away from Jackson and so forth, and uh, I still thought I wanted to be an engineer um, going to college, but when I was in high school, I had, uh, I had one, oh, I had more than one, I had two or three exceptional teachers there. Two of them were English teachers, and I was going to go to the University of Illinois, and by then, I had changed away from engineering. Okay. Um, I was very good at that sort of stuff. Math and science were my strongest classes. Uh, and I went to the University of Illinois between my junior and senior years of high school at this National Science Foundation pre-engineering program for really bright kids. You know, the Russians had just launched the satellite, and we were starting to look bad. And they, they wanted the best and brightest to get into what we now call STEM. Sure. And... Uh, so they lost money on me because when I went and saw the engineers and did what they wanted us to do, I decided I wasn't going to be an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> and I went back to high school, and my best teachers were English teachers. And so I thought, my God, I'm going to go uh, off to you know, study English, American hmm. literature, basically. And I was going to go to the University of Illinois, and this one, perf- one uh, teacher of mine, um, he didn't want me to go there. He just thought that I was a diploma mill place. So hmm. he wanted me to go someplace else. So he had a friend running admissions at DePaul University mm-hmm. in Greencastle, Indiana. And he called him up, and all of a sudden I had a scholarship to go to DePaul University, which I did. So I went there, and I measured, I majored in English. Hmm. But then uh, it was like the reverse of high school. I didn't like the English professors at DePaul. Right. They didn't seem to be very good as far as I was concerned. But I did have a really good history professor. Okay. And so I double majored in history and uh, 
and in English. And there's a field that combines those two, literature and history. It's called American Studies. Okay. And so for graduate school, I went to American Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, I got a Ph.D. there eventually in 1977. But um, while I was there, I, oddly enough, had a part, well, a full-time job for two years while I was in graduate school as a lab technician at the School of Metallurgy and Material Science. Hmm. Uh, so I was working with the engineers, which is the field I decided not to go into, but I enjoyed working at the School of Metallurgy. And I did a lot of ma uh, machining for them. I produced test specimens for undergraduates to break on things called instron machines to see how strong they were, how much strain they could take, and so on. So I learned how to run lays and milling machines and drill presses and all that. Yeah. And I had a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who was interested in this new field. It was a brand new field called industrial archaeology. That's the study of old industrial sites and factories and bridges and technological stuff, let's hmm. just put it that way. Um that were historically significant and whatnot and and should be preserved. And so industrial archaeology was just starting in this country. It came out of England. And I got involved with that through my professor there. So I got involved in not making technological stuff, but in studying technological things. Hmm. And then uh, the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, which I'd gone to several times as a kid, um, they put out an opening for a job to curate their power and machine tool collection, particularly mm -hmm. their machine tools. They had a big collection of woodworking machines and an even larger collection of metalworking machines there. And uh, so I applied for that job. And, you know, I must have been like the only applicant who was in a Ph.D. program who had just been doing machining work at the same time. Right. So I got that job. And uh, and I took that, and I was there for two or three years. And I did things like I cataloged their machine tool collection, which had never been done before. And uh, I had to try to figure out what when they were produced and, you know, what all they did and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I left from there when somebody, again, because of industrial archaeology, there was a, an outfit in the federal government called the Historic American Engineering Record. It's a, it was a small part of the National Park Service. Okay. And what they did was go around the country and identify and study um, and document through photography and and engineering drawings and architecture drawings and so forth, historic works of American industry out on the landscape. Mm -hmm. So I went and worked for them. So we moved from the Midwest to Washington, D.C., and uh, I was there for four or five years altogether, but I ran projects in different parts of the, the country and things like that. And in 1978... Um, I was running like five projects. I sent a team out to study a blast furnace in the Adirondacks, uh, to study the IRT subway in New York City, to study a w remarkably preserved woolen mill in Lawson, uh, in, Ma in uh, um, Missouri. Yeah, hmm. it was in Missouri. And uh, then I also did the uh, the power plant, uh, the Edison Sioux Electric Power Plant in Sioux St. Marie, Michigan. I put a team there. Hmm. And I also put a team together to study the Quincy Mine here above Hancock. 
Now, one of our workers that we put out in the field to do an inventory of Michigan's industrials heritage and sites, Charlie Hyde from Wayne State, he had turned up the Quincy mine, and he thought we should do a recording project on it. Huh. That's what that's what our projects are called. We'd go to a place in Puerto Rico where they've got steam engines from 1860 that were used to to you know to produce uh, sugar. You know, mm-hmm. so they run rollers to crush sugar cane with their steam engines and things like that. Um, so we went, we'd go out and study these sites. And so we picked the Quincy Mine as one of these to study. So then I had to, I put together a team to come up here to Quincy. Yeah. And I raised the money for it. And, you know, we had a hiring procedure that we had to go through as part of the federal government. And I'll tell you a funny story about that was... I mean, I basically had the whole field team hired, and we were all ready to go. It's going to start like the first week of June. And the one thing I didn't have was absolute permission from the Quincy Mining Company. It still existed, even though they hadn't mined, you know, basically since 1945. Um I had to get their permission, and not only did I want their permission, I wanted $10,000 from them to pay for this thing. Hmm. And I was just sort of... I talked to the company president. I'd butt heads with him. Oh, uh, and then I talked to his lawyer. And the one thing they always want to know what's in it for them. And as an historian, I, we do it because the study itself is intrinsically significant and important and worth doing. Right. And but if you're an attorney for a mining company, it's like, what's in it for me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm getting down to. I'm getting down to the very end. I mean, these guys have got to decide if they're going to do this for us or not. And the lawyer calls me. He he asked me one more time what's in it for me. And so I went way out of bounds, really. I said, well, you got to figure out if if people decide that you don't care about your history, somebody's going to try to get you as a national landmark. Yeah. And he thought that that meant they'd tie up the property and they couldn't do a damn thing with it and stuff like that. And... uh and so he says to me, he says, in other words, you're threatening me. Yeah. I said, oh, no, oh, no, I'm not threatening you. Of course, right. I just had, but, yeah. you know, I was <laughs> calling, you know, he didn't call my bluff. You know, he th- he was taking me pretty seriously. So we hung up, and I thought, well, I screwed the pooch on that one. You know, yeah. That's, uh, I went too far and, and all that, and the next day I get a phone call, and it was the— uh, the president of the company, Seymour Prop, and he's chuckling. He says, "Well, you certainly pissed off our attorney." Yeah, <laughs> he's he's laughing about it, right. and he gives me ten thousand dollars and says, "Go do it." Awesome. It was oh. funny. That, so anyway, then then I showed up here on on my motorcycle again on the, and met Louis Keppel, who was the the sort of caretaker or the property manager for Quincy Mine, and they still rented houses out and stuff around here. Hmm. And so we had a total of uh, 10 people, I think, on that team. This is the summer of 1978. So we got into the Quincy Mining Company office building. Louis Kepo, I loved the guy. He was... uh, he was a little taken back, you know, when we showed up and wanted to know this and wanted to know that, but uh, he was a closet historic preservationist himself. Hmm. You know, he tried to preserve things. Um, and he he collected photographs of the old Quincy mine and, and that kind of thing. So 
he really liked what we're doing. It just took him a little while to figure out, you know, that we weren't crazy or anything like that. Right, right. Um, so he gave us the keys to all the buildings, and he gave us the combinations to all the locks and and turned us loose on the, uh, particularly the Quincy Mining Company, where they had so many written records. Yeah, right. And uh, this is why I'm here today, is what we found in the vaults of the Quincy Mining Company. Huh back in 1978 because these records were voluminous and they this company simply didn't throw anything out right and so we went i mean we had company records that are going back to the 1840s that were in the basement vault and things like that we got letter books that recorded all of the letter you know um letters that they wrote to anybody and then we had uh just any number of other records that are kept in files. We had their engineering drawing collection. We had all of their maps. Um, they just had a, a tremendous amount of material up there. Hmm. And I'll tell you the story that, that when we first got here, I was running the whole project because we had uh, like four, four, four or five architects on the team too. And I was the guy who used to do some architectural drawing and stuff like that, or engineering drawing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a spinoff from my dad, too, because he was also a draftsman. But uh, so I was running the whole team. Plus, I was specifically working with the architects and the drawings. They're going to draw what we say we're going to draw, and this is how we're going to do it, and that sort of thing. Charlie is running the historians, but Charlie and I together are running the whole team. So the first weekend that we're here, um, we sent everybody else away. Charlie and I went up to the office building all these keys and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, what the hell have we got here? Right. I mean, what all is here? And we start getting just like smacked in the face with how great these records are. And I basically say I don't think there's probably a mining company in 19th century America had better record collection than the Quincy Mine did. C&H has records, too. uh, Copper Age had records, too. But they are not as complete as Quincy's are. Yeah. So, I mean, and we really knew we had found the sort of treasure trove when, as part of this sort of reconnaissance mission to see what we got up there. Yeah. Well, the most exciting things that happened— was up on the second floor, there was an oak roll-top desk. And we came to learn that this had been the general manager or the agent's desk at the Quincy Mine. Charlie Lawton has been the agent for a long time. It was his desk. Mm-hmm. They moved it out of the way because somebody else is renting out the lower floor. So we're looking at this desk, and it's all locked up. So, you know, it's a roll-top desk. The roll-top's locked up. Every damn drawer is locked up. And I thought back to something my dad, clever guy that he was, once did when we were on a vacation in the eastern UP. A guy let us, from his work, let us have use of his cabin on this lake. And we got up there, but the boat was chained to a tree. Hmm. And my dad looks at it and is like, well, this is no problem. He goes to the car and he gets a screwdriver and he takes the boat seat off, slips the chain off, puts the seat back on. We use the boat for a week. Then before we leave, we take the seat off, put the chain around it again, and we leave and it's locked up again. Mm-hmm. I thought, if it works for a boat, it might work for a desk. So I found the screwdriver. We started taking the desk apart. Yeah. 
and we got the whole top off and stuff and we figured out how to get the drawers open we still didn't have a key but we got into it so we opened the bottom left hand i'll never forget this because as a historian this is like you know going to heaven while you're still alive yeah because there's nothing like finding a good bunch of records this is what historians live for right we got the bottom left-hand corner drawer. I'll never forget it. We open it up, and it's just stacked full of envelopes that are neatly arrayed in here. All right. And so we open some of these envelopes, and what is it we've got here? What we've got are spy reports. Quincy had paid spies to spy on its labor force. Unreal. And even the mine agent didn't know who they were. They would come up here, and they would get a job on their own. They would go about their work. They would listen to the men complain. They would decide who's a good boss, who's a bad boss, who's the, what ethnic group is a problem maker and things like this. And Quincy did this from, I don't know, at least 1906 through almost 1920 probably. Uh, and so what the agent did was he's the only one who actually knows for sure that they've got spies that they've hired. So he would read the letter from the spy. Oh, say the spy, what he would do is he'd go to work, then he'd go to wherever he was staying, and he would send a letter down to the detective service agency in Chicago that employed him. Yep. They would type it up, and they would mail it to the mine agent. Oh, he yeah. would read these letters, then he'd fold them back up, put them back in the envelope, stick them in that same drawer. So he had a drawer full of like 15 years of spy reports on the Quincy Labor Force. That's like, <laughs> oh. oh, my God, you couldn't believe. And Charlie Hyde, he actually wrote an article a little bit later just on the use of industrial spies in America based largely on what we found there in, in, that, uh, in that drawer. And that was... It was just great records, and there are all kinds of other records like that. Now, I'm a, I'm a historian of technology by now. So just to give you an example, what I got or found right then is that we knew that the, the single most important invention ever taken underground at the mining companies here or anyplace else in the 19th century were power rock drills. So mm -hmm. you're not using a sledgehammer and a handheld drill steel to drill shot holes for blasting rock anymore. You got these big machines that do it, mm -hmm. powered by compressed air. And they're called, two, uh, Quincy was using a two-man rock drill starting largely in 1880. And uh, so I was interested in the implementation of these drills. How did they put them into the mine? An interesting thing, if you know anything about Copper Country history, you know that the strike in 1913-14 was largely caused by the introduction of the one-man drilling machine right. at that point. Yeah. Now, here's an interesting point. In 1880, they introduced machine rock drills for the first time, and I could not find any evidence of workers responding against those machines. Right. Now, they've been using machines for 30 years or more now, and now they hand them another machine, and all hell breaks loose, and you got this terrible strike up here. Yeah. How did that happen? Why did that happen? And uh, so I was interested in how did they introduce these drills in 1880? Mm -hmm. And 
So again, you've got Quincy's records. You got letter books where they're writing to drilling companies, uh, and and you know exactly when they got the drills, and you can find out exactly when how many drills they got. But one other record that Quincy had, which is like a gold mine, they had their contract books. You know, miners here worked under contracts, not just under daily wages or something like that. Sure, and so. Miners formed their own contract teams, and then they went to work, and and the and they either were um, sinking shafts or driving drifts or stoping the copper or whatever it is they're doing. The mining company kept records of it, and they put them in the contract book, and then they knew how much they had agreed to work for. So you sort of just multiply this time that, and that's how much you get paid for this month's worth of work. Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting thing these contract books they showed you exactly who got these drills and how much they made and how much work they did. Right. And you could clearly see that Quincy encouraged people to use these machines because they gave them a flat. They, You know, one of the things that a guy would work, worry about is if I run this machine, am I going to make more money or less money? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? Hmm. Quincy made it look like for sure they're going to make more money, not right. less. Right. So – they nominally still working under a contract machine, but at the end of the month, they just paid these guys more than what a normal miner made. Yeah. And that encouraged them to keep working these, these machines. And then other guys came in and worked the machines. And then the machines were a godsend in terms of the bottom line. They made more money by running these machines. And they shared part of that with the workers. Mm-hmm. So wages went up. Right. So there's why the two-man drill came in and uh, and was successful and so on. But none of that happened in around 1913. They okay. forced those drills in. Half the men uh, were going to lose their jobs, and they had no place to go. In 1880, the industry was expanding. Yep. So, yeah, it's true that if we put these machines in, half the men might lose their jobs, but they can just go to this other mine and find one. Because, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, the pie was getting bigger, let's put it that way. Right. Right. 1913, the pie was getting smaller, yeah. and everybody felt they're under crunch. So, so I ended up studying rock drills, and I wrote a very good, I think, article about it that went in, uh, you know, a very good uh, journal called Technology and Culture, called, you know, the machine under the garden. Rock drills arrive at the Lake Superior copper mines and stuff hmm. like that. Um, can I can I take you to that first time you came to Quincy? Did you realize what you were getting into? No. No, we, Charlie and I came up here in the fall of 1977 to scope the place out. Yeah, and we also uh, went and looked at the lakes at uh, the uh, Edison Sioux Power Plant in Sault Ste. Marie because that was a great site. That, and I ended up running a recording project over there too. Mm-hmm. But we came over here, um, you know, and we uh, we drove up and down the Keweenaw, and I agreed with Charlie that. Quincy was the best mine to study based on what was left. Mm-hmm. You know, it had the big hoist, it had the shaft rock house. It's got the remains of the machine shop and the blacksmith shop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's got all this housing around it. Right. Um, but not records. You didn't know that at that point. No, we didn't right. know. We didn't know that they had this go- treasure trove. Um, I don't even know if we went inside the office building on that time. We met with Louis Keppel and talked with him and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And we we also talked to his son, Ed Keppel, 
who was the vice president at Michigan Tech, hmm. uh, because I'm bringing up you know ten or twelve people up here. Where are we going to stay? Right. And I got I got architects coming, and where are they going to draw? You know things. So we talked with Ed Kepp about a range. If we if we got this thing to happen, can we stay on the Michigan Tech campus and the basically on the married student housing hmm. up the hill a little ways, and then uh, can we get some some room in an engineering building where we can use the drafting tables and whatnot to, for the architects to work in. Yeah. But, man, we had no idea that the records were were as remarkable as they were. Right. Um, obviously, we couldn't get through it all in one summer, but we, I, I was, you know, this was a hardworking group, mm-hmm. and we uh, we typically would be up there by at least no later than nine in the morning, and we'd work all through the day, and we'd have dinner. And many nights during the summer, we went back to work after dinner, and, and worked till nine o'clock at night, and called it a day. Right. We, we really put in a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so we create all this. We created reports. So we wrote reports. I wrote 250-some pages about just the mining technology at Quincy. And mm-hmm. Charlie Hyde, who's basically an economic historian, wrote a kind of business economic history at Quincy. And another woman wrote a article about the architecture of the uh, company housing and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wrote reports, and we uh, we did engineering. or Well, in this case, they largely were like engineering drawings of uh, – Oh, the number two hoist and the hoist house and and uh, the number two shaft rock house and things. Right. And we also had a photographer come up. The National Park Service photographer Jet Lowe was up here, and he uh, he was used taking large format four by five negatives, shots of uh, Quincy. Mm-hmm. You know, the mine and the um, the housing and the. And the smelter in particular, did we did that too because we covered the smelter in these reports. Now, what all this we this stuff went back to Washington, and then it gets tidied up in the Hare office. Then it goes to the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. So there's a Hare collection at the Library of Congress that has all the stuff we generated huh. in 1978 there. Right now, copies of that we had sent out here to to put in the Michigan Tech Archive so people could use it. Yeah, and the other thing we did was that we recognized how important these records were. So we talked to the company president and said, "You got to save these things." Right. You know, and we, Louis Keppel, same thing. Get them to Michigan Tech Archives, and uh, so we sort of pressed that button and said, "Start working on getting this stuff to Michigan Tech Archives." and Teresa Spence was the relatively new archivist there too hmm. that summer. And we talked to her about the records. Of course, we'd done some research in the archives too because they had all this published stuff on the history of mining that we also used. Mm-hmm. Um, talked to her about the importance of the records and, and work with these guys and get it. And that's what happened. Yeah, the art, the records did go. At least the ones that Teresa wanted did go to uh, the Michigan Tech archives. Okay. Um, so I was here in 78. For, we only did this in 10 weeks. And then I came back in 79, and I think in 80 as well, and did some additional research kind of on my own at that point. Okay. And then uh, 
a job opened up at Michigan Tech. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was called sci- uh, Science, Technology, and Society. Right. Well, I thought I could squeeze in in my work in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I applied for the job and I got it. And uh, and I and I got it and I took it largely because I knew these records were up here. Right. And I thought I can build a career on this, you know, and I don't have to I don't have to worry about are there records or I don't have to worry about the 2,000 miles away from me or anything. They're only down the block. Right. You know, I bought a house right on College Avenue. That was the other nice thing was when I was here in the summers, my favorite house in in Houghton was 1017 College Avenue, mm-hmm. kind of colonial revival house. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And when I came up for the job interview, the house was for sale. Hmm. You know, it looked like all the signs were pointing to making a move to Houghton. Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> they, it was funny because I talked to a faculty member and they said, well, you got this, you know, a couple hour block of time here free. You can walk around and talk to various faculty members and stuff. I said, yeah, that's that's fine. Good. I walked straight out of the office, <laughs> went to the real estate office in downtown Houghton and started talking about 1017 College Avenue. Right. Uh, Jenny Kurtz uh, was the agent, or Jeannie Kurtz. And uh, so ultimately I bought that house and we, we moved here in the in the uh, fall of 1981, um, very late in August or very early in September, one or the other. And, okay. Uh, and my wife was like seven months pregnant at the time. So, but we got settled up, and that's the that's the very long story of how we got here. Yeah. Forrester Research interviewed 206 senior technology leaders in major organizations responsible for software development sourcing. said their software development service partners do not have a full understanding of their end customer. If you're dead serious about moving faster and getting more done, Zeratech Software Development can help you move forward with confidence. Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help solve your problems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. As they align with their clients, they use a proven method to understand the scope of the problem and help demystify the steps to make it go away. They will deliver the software solution you need, and they do it with the integrity that you'd expect from a family-owned business in the heartland of America. Schedule a call with the team at Zeratech today at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. <clears throat> no, it's a, and it's a good story, but I'm curious on the uh, the mining thing, because that was one of five projects. Yeah. That one gripped you because of the records itself, but is it also the... Like, was there something about this whole world that gripped you above and beyond some of the other projects? Because you could have easily gotten gripped in other worlds as well. What You're right. You're, and you know, I never even asked myself that question. That's a good question. Why did I take this project? See, I was the boss of five. Right. I, I, uh, I could have taken any of them. Right. And these were good projects. I mean, oh, my gosh. It was... Uh, I'd been to all of these places, so I'd seen what they had, you know, this... Uh, this woolen mill in Missouri was absolutely was like intact. Yeah, it's a late nineteenth century woolen mill. It had all the machinery in it. I mean, it's just and it's out in this rural area. It's very pretty. Uh, but you know, I was never really an expert in in uh, textile machinery. Sure. And 
I know how important it is. Textiles was one of those driving industries that drove the Industrial Revolution. It was mm-hmm. all textiles. Lowell, Massachusetts, Manchester, New Hampshire, and all those places. But, you know, I never learned the history of textile machinery because it wasn't something I was terribly interested in. I just had to do it. Right. But the other reason I didn't do it was I already knew the experts. Yeah. Two of my friends were two of the best people to talk about textile machinery. Hmm. And so why should I do it? They That's their bag, not my bag. Right. So I hired one of those two guys to go do this thing. Yeah. And he did it. And the the blast furnace in the Adirondacks, oh, my gosh, it's just tucked away in this, you know, sort of idyllic. It's a state park, the Adirondacks State Park. And it's hilly and it's wooded and there's a river running right through this and there's a old hunting lodge up there that our team actually stayed in right during the summer and it was like um just a great place and the guy who national lead company they were mining lead in the region as well to make paint and uh but this was a blast furnace for making iron it's an old stone furnace and uh I was interested in that stuff because I had actually worked on some iron furnaces in uh, in Pennsylvania when I was a graduate student at Penn. Hmm. And the metallurgy professor I worked with, he and I used to go out and find these things on weekends mm-hmm. you know, just because it was fun to go out <laughs> and just find an old furnace in the middle of the woods. And so he and I had enjoyed that. And so I would have enjoyed this one too, but nah, that's sort of like I've already done that. So I knew some other guy um, who was a good friend of mine who uh, spent some time living in my house in Washington with me and my wife while he was uh, doing some of his work on his doctorate and things like that, Bruce Seeley. And he was into iron and steel. I gave that job to Bruce. Right. You know, And that's, that's sort of the way it worked. And yeah. the, uh, the other interesting thing is uh, the the hydroelectric plant in Sault Ste. Marie. Hmm. You got to realize that this is just, it's just past where you pick up the ferry Mm -hmm. to go through the falls. I don't know how many people notice it, but it's the longest hydroelectric plant in the world. Hmm. And uh, it's got like, I'm just going off my memory, which is not as good as it used to be. It's got like 74 turbine bays in it. It stretches on forever. And right. it's a low-head hydro plant. That's why it's got so many different turbines in it. Because they want to produce this much power, but they don't have a high head of water to run through turbines, a low head. So they just make more turbines to make more power. This is a great site. Yeah. And uh, um, I just didn't want to do that for some reason. Quincy drew me the most. Um, But I turned the hydroelectric plant over to a guy named Terry Reynolds, who was a professor at at, um, University of Wisconsin. Right. Now, the interesting thing about all this is that eventually I came to Michigan Tech, Terry Reynolds came to Michigan Tech, Bruce Seeley came to Michigan Tech. Mm -hmm. We were all department chairs. Bruce became the dean of the College of Sciences and Arts. Huh. It all came out of this historic American engineering record, and particularly that summer of 1978. And the the woman we hired to do architectural history, I tried to hire her on the team that came up to do hair. Right. 
but she had a better offer from the Historic American Building Survey to study something else, so she didn't come up here to work. Mm -hmm. But she did come up here to look at Quincy during the summer of 78, and then eventually I finally talked her into quitting the federal government and coming up here to work as well. So four people that I knew through the my work with the Historic American Engineering Record became four professors at Michigan Tech. Yeah. Um, and we were key and important to the department for quite a long period of time. Huh. You never know how that stuff's going to sort of work out. Right. But what I always believed in was find good people and let them run. And yeah. these were all, all of these people were really good. And, uh, and they did really good things over their entire careers. Mm-hmm. And so it was really nice to, to have us all together here at Michigan Tech. Right. Now, one of the things I've learned through this podcast, I'm talking to a lot of people in a lot of different areas of life, is small moments or or, or things when people come together lead to what will be huge parts of those people's lives in the future. Yeah. But in that moment, you don't realize that. You don't know it. Right. You don't know it. Um, Kim Hoagland, who wrote the book Mind Towns, who's uh, the one who didn't come to work on the hair project but came here eventually. Um in the spring semester of 1978, I taught a class in industrial archaeology for George Washington University hmm. while I was working at Hare. Mm-hmm. And we would, uh, there were only like five or eight people in the class. It was a graduate school class. Kim Hoagland was one of the students. Hmm. She was the best student in that class. Right. And... She, you know, she ends up coming here. And and the sort of interesting thing is that uh, one of the things I did, this is also a sort of thing that keeps coming to my mind. One of the things I did when we were out here in the fall of 77, when I thought, well, maybe I'll do this Quincy Mine thing. I, you got to realize I was largely a manufacturing historian, mm-hmm. and it was metalworking and stuff like that, that kind of machinery. I'd never studied mining in my life. Right. And uh, But I knew we had the archives here, and I didn't know about that great collection of records up the hill, but um, we did have all the annual reports of the company that were down at the tech archives. So yeah. I had them Xerox, all of them. Mm-hmm. And send them to me in Washington. And I can still remember, just as if it happened yesterday, that I'm on my couch reading these annual reports. You know, I got a pile of them on my belly while I'm laying down on my couch and I'm reading. And I start laughing. And my wife says, what's so funny? I said, I've read this damn paragraph three times and I don't understand (laughs) a damn word it says. Because they're using all these mining terms about stopes and drifts and adits and cubic this and cubic that. And, uh, man, I started from zero. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people read my books want to know, how did I learn so much about the technology? Because I talk about it a lot in the mm. books. It's important. Right. And uh, and I basically get it right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not wrong about what I have to say about it. People wonder, you know, how do you know so much? Well, you went out and learned it. That's, mm-hmm. that's what you had to do. Right. Um, but uh, once I learned it, then I just sort of stayed around, did more of it. The interesting thing about my career in part at Michigan Tech is that, you know, I wrote four books on the history of the copper country. The first was with Charlie Hyde called Old Reliable, an illustrated history of the Quincy Mining Company. And 
that the uh, we did that in part just to document what we'd done during the summer with the hair team and and the Quincy Mine Hoist Association wanted us to produce something so that they could publish it and sell it. So we did that book. But then then I wrote what I might call more serious, if you will, academic press books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the one thing I, I'll always say is that when I was writing my books, I wanted I avoid jargon if I possibly can, and I don't want to sound like some highfalutin professor sitting in his office writing stuff that, you know, the guy who goes bowling on Saturday can't understand. Right. I just, you know, I came from a kind of working class background, and I, I appreciate people who can write so that a wide audience can read it and enjoy it and understand it. And that's the way I've always tried to write. Right. That's why I was taught to write by these English teachers that I had and mm-hmm. so forth were so good. So, <clears throat> Oh, I tried that in all of my books, but the first book is the book that, as a historian of technology, Cradle of Grave, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think a lot of people still say, this isn't just me, but if you're going to read one book on the history of the Copper Country, that's probably the one you should read. Sure. Um, that did a lot of the stuff about the technological history and <coughs> mind safety, which is something else I was very interested in. Huh. Remind me, we can talk about that if yeah. you want. Um, but that was the book I was destined to write as an historian of technology. But I'd already written that. So uh, you talk about little moments. Well, so I'm in the Michigan Tech Archives, and uh, um, I'm reading store account books. You know, this is one of the things they got up there. They got stores up here in the 1840s. I mean, as soon as the miners come, the stores come. And they they still got some of these books at Michigan Tech Archives. So you can read that this is the guy walked into the store, and this is what the guy bought, mm-hmm. or the woman, whatever it is. And uh, I'm sitting there, and Samuel Worth Hill walks into the store. And he's an important figure up here in the history of several binds. And, uh, you know, the... The wives' tale is, and I don't know if it's true or not, that he used to swear so much that the the expression "what the Sam Hill" is after him right. for "what the hell." I don't know if that's true or not, but I like the story, and it's not going to change the world one way or another if it is true or not true. But right. anyway, he is a real person, and he comes up here and he goes into this store and he buys a a black satin hat and a and a, and a black satin vest. This is on the mining frontier. Right. I'm looking at that. I'm thinking, what the Sam hell is he doing that for? What's he, you know, what does he need a satin vest for? And uh, that raised the whole issue of maybe the frontier is different from what we thought it was. Yeah. You can get that stuff up here. You can get canned lobster up here in the 1850s. What's going on, you know? Right. What's life like on the frontier? So that became my next book. Yeah. Um, Beyond the Boundaries is the social history of the mining frontier. Right. Not about the mining companies, and it's not about mining technology. It's about life. Right. What do you eat? What do you do for entertainment? Yeah. You know. I'm um, I'm partway into that right now. It's sitting right there. Yeah, Yeah. well, that's... uh, that's one of my favorites. I actually, I really like that book. Yeah. Um, and so that was uh, that was a book I bid on. But 
Would I have done it if I hadn't seen Sam Hill buying a satin vest? Yeah. I don't know, but that's definitely what triggered it. Right. It just made me stop and think about, you know, you, you think that the frontier up here has got rough and tumble from dawn till dusk. There's nothing fancy about it, nothing uh, sophisticated about it. It was just rough and tumble. Right. It wasn't, actually. Yeah. It was rough and tumble in many ways, but you know they were relieved. You know they got relieved from that kind of tedious existence. You know quite often in a variety of ways. So right. As a story, just sort of bounce around, and then uh, the last book I did um, was. Uh, now I have trouble even remembering the names of my own books. Right. People ask me about. What did you say about this? And I said, well, this is what I said, but don't ask me what book I said it in. Right. right. It's one of those things they all sort of run together. Yeah. Um, hollowed ground. Hollowed ground. Yeah. I, I was, I had the book virtually done and I was thinking about what the hell's the title for this. And, and I was actually asleep and I woke up and the title was there, Hollowed Ground. Right. Not hallowed, hollowed. This yeah. is a mining history. I thought that was so damn clever. So oh, yeah. that became the title of the book. Huh. Um, that was actually started out as a report for the National Park Service. Yeah. Uh, historic Sites Report for the National Park Service. And the idea was they were going to publish it. But there was somebody who worked up there who didn't like me very much. And uh, they didn't really realize what the hell this was supposed to be about because they'd never read these things themselves. So... They decided they weren't going to publish it. Mm -hmm. Well, fine, you aren't going to publish it. I'll just rework it and get it published. So that's what I did right? Um, with Wayne State University Press. But what I did was uh, they had hired me to write something about Calumet and Hecla. And I looked at the three main companies up here, were Quincy, Calumet, Hecla, and Copper Range. And I wanted to write something about all of those and about their whole sweep of their lives, mm -hmm. what they what they were doing as a young company, as a mature company. And then when they started to falter, right. what happened to them and their communities? Yeah. What happens to Houghton and Hancock when the Quincy Mining Company goes down? What happens to the village of Calumet, Calumet Township when C&H goes down? What happens to South Range and what happens to, you know, the, the mining locations down uh, around the mines and Champion and so forth? What what happens to them mm -hmm. when their company goes down? So that became my last book done, uh, I think published in 2010. Okay. Now, I got to confess, I had other books planned, but they never got written. I got tons of research hmm. done, but... Uh, they didn't quite make it to the the printer, so to speak. Right, right. But, uh, um, thinking about the writing side of things, I've th I've been while I'm reading this, I've been wondering to myself: the writing was it just a tool to communicate your 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 uh, the the stuff that you were studying at that time and the research that you've done, or did you enjoy and and appreciate the writing for the writing itself? Does that does that question make any sense? Both. Okay. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I I uh, I appreciate the writing. It yeah. doesn't always go well or easy. This is one thing people don't understand, you know. You know, if you lay bricks for a living, 
And God bless you, we need bricklayers and electricians and everybody else. We absolutely depend on these people. Right. You can understand why people think their job is hard. Yeah. You can also understand why they think your job is easy. Mm-hmm. But they never tried to write a damn book either. Right. It's a different kind of work. Yeah. But it is work. It's something that sticks with you. You hit a point, it's like every single day you're writing something. I finally got into a habit of how I do this. Yeah. But every single day you're writing something, you got to start somewhere and end somewhere. Mm-hmm. And um, and where are you going to go? Right. You know? uh, I like to say historians are, do like two things. One is that they... They read dead people's mail. That's mm-hmm. one thing we do. And then the other people, is we we knit together facts to make stories. Mm-hmm. And that knitting together facts to make stories, I, I enjoy doing it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I wasn't cussing and getting up and stomping the floor and walking around or walking out of the office and saying, I can't do this today. Right. I mean, this happens a lot. What I mean, I, I'll take. I was on sabbatical at MIT one year. Usually, I got a sabbatical from Michigan Tech to write these major books that I wrote. Right. Um, so I was at the Hagley Hagley uh, Museum and Elther and Mills and so forth in Delaware to write Cradle to Grave, <clears throat> and I was at MIT to write. Um, Beyond the boundaries and so forth. Mm-hmm. I, when I wrote the last one, um, Hollow Ground, I just stayed here. I didn't have to work, but I stayed here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had this routine. You know, we lived right in Cambridge, and I could walk to my office at, at MIT. It was right on the Charles River. It was beautiful. I got. Mm-hmm. I've been a pretty lucky guy. Yeah, know, pretty lucky guy, and. I'd go in and I'd be writing by nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and and I would. One thing I did to, to you can't you can't write a book if you don't get to the end. Right. You know, getting to the end is the whole point. Mm-hmm. So one thing I learned is, and a lot of people fail at this, historians and other people, is they always are obsessed with what they just wrote the day before. Right. And so they'll go back and they'll edit that, and then they'll write it again. And then oh, what they do the next day, they go back and read the edited version, and they'll edit it again. In other words, they keep working the same ground over again. Mm-hmm. What I would do is I would go in. I didn't look at what I did the day before. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day before, I wrote where I was going next just as a short message to myself. Sure. I'd sit down and I'd write that. And if the going, if writing was going well, I'd stay there till 5 o'clock. Yeah. If if I found that I don't know what I'm doing today, but it ain't a good day for writing, I go home at one. Right. And I'm on sabbatical, so I don't have to teach or anything. I just go home and mm-hmm. play with the kids or whatever I'm doing, you know. And then right. I go back the next day. Yeah. But you get into that routine. But the always the whole idea is to move forward. Don't don't keep editing the same damn thing. Right. Um. But I like the writing thing. I. I most of my books have been uh, have been well received, not only by the general population. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Cradle of Grave has sold at least twelve thousand copies. I forget exactly, but um, and a lot of them are just people picked them up because they're interested in the subject, and they'll tell me that they liked it. Mm-hmm. But also, these books get reviewed by your fellow academicians, and they've always been reviewed well. Right and that kind of thing, which is which is good. Um, yeah, but I enjoyed the writing. Um, like I said, when I was younger, I had some good teachers 
both at the high school level who emphasized writing and made you write essays and would write comments on your essays and all that. Mm-hmm. And then I had one guy at uh, DePaul University. I took creative writing from him in a couple of courses. And the interesting thing about this guy is he couldn't teach worth a damn. In a classroom, he was just terrible. He was hmm. so damn boring. Right. And, you know, he'd sort of mumble and all that. But I'd go to him after class and talk to him about what I'd written. Yeah. And if you went one-on-one with this guy and hand, he had his work right in front of you, he could just dissect that thing and tell you where you did it right and where you did it wrong. Hmm. I learned a lot from that guy. I don't know if anybody else in that class learned a damn thing from him because, right. you know, they didn't like him, you know. Yeah. He always had small classes. Right. But you just have to take take from people what they're actually best at giving. Mm-hmm. That you know, he was a good critic as long as it was one on one, that kind of stuff. Right. So I, I'm uh I like to think that if you read my first draft of a book, it's decent, but it's not, you know, great or something. I like to think that I'm not the world's best writer by any means, but um, I am a good editor. Okay. Back when I have finished it, now let me go back and read it. Sure. Let me trim this down. Let me uh, streamline the language. Let me get rid of so damn many adjectives. You know, adjectives don't really tell you a lot in a paragraph. Mm-hmm. You can just go through and redline them all if you want to. And right. when you get down to the end of the paragraph, you still have learned everything you wanted to know. Right. And uh, so I'm a good editor. Um, but, and actually, I find that fun. It's huh. painstaking detail. Right. You know. Like, do you put a comma here or don't you put a comma here? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, But I sort of enjoy it. Uh, I'll tell you a story right now because I have just gone back to writing something. Okay. Since I've written a couple things since I retired. Um, I wrote an article on this hair project on the uh, Quincy Mine. Mm -hmm. Um and what kind of spin-offs that had for the region and so forth up here that was published in the Journal of Industrial Archaeology. But I hadn't really written much of anything else. But, uh, you know, besides teaching a copper country history class for 30 years, I also taught the automobile in America up mm-hmm. here for the same amount of time. Mm-hmm. And I published just a few little things on automotive history, but not much. Uh, I'd never done a book on it, so I thought, well, Maybe I'll try to write a book on this. Just before I retired, I started writing a book that was part history and part memoir. Because one of the things you realize teaching the automobile in America is how it touches so many parts of a person's life. Just Mm. the car being there and the way you use it and where you get to go and what you get to do is so determined by access to the automobile. and stuff. Particularly in the 1950s and 60s when I was a kid. Right. So... I started to write this book um, that's part history, part memoir. Uh, it's called like, uh, well, I don't know for sure what the title is, but it's going to be like uh, autobiography, hmm. two mm-hmm. words. Sure. Um, a baby boomer grows up and, well, you know, a baby boomer motors in the 1950s and 60s, something like that. Right. Anyway. About your life then? Tying your life into the yeah. automobile? Yeah, yeah cool. exactly. It's, yeah. 
it's about the car and its role, but it's also about what it meant to me and my family and all of that kind of stuff. Right. And it's got all kinds of personal stories in it. Huh. And uh, I thought it was going to get published a long time ago, and I had a uh, acquisitions editor at Johns Hopkins University Press. I had reviewed many of their manuscripts for them that dealt with the history of the automobile. Mm-hmm. So I was one of those guys they went to to say, should we publish this or should it be changed? You know, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I said, by the way, I'm working on this manuscript. And uh, so I sent it to him. He loved it. Ah, (laughs) God, he just loved the damn thing. And he was was making plans, you know, right and left about what we could do with this book and how we'd publicize it and all that. Then he took it to their publications board and they turned it down. And they turned it down because... It wasn't just a straight history. It was a memoir, and they don't do the the press does not do autobiographies. Okay. So they turned it down, and it just deflated me totally. Huh. <laughs> and uh, um, so oddly enough, it just sat there for like ten years. Yeah. And uh, I just picked it up about two weeks ago. Okay. I picked it up at other times, but I. You talk about writing. I had a, I'd never been in a place where I couldn't write my way out of it, but I was working on a chapter for this book that I couldn't write my way out of. Huh. I didn't. I couldn't figure out how to do it and what parts to emphasize, and what part to lead with, and what part to finish with, and and uh, part of it was history, the history of automobile racing in the fifties and the sixties after the second world war mm-hmm. the introduction of drag racing, sports car racing, all these dirt tracks and so forth, creation of NASCAR. It's going to do that. Mm-hmm. Then I was going to talk about Indianapolis and a personal story where I was, my dad pissed me off when I was six years old because all the guys in the family left from a farm in Indiana to go to the Indianapolis 500 in 1953. And he didn't take me. Mm-hmm. It's one of these, you know, things I remember from my childhood. And he didn't take me, but he did take me to races at Jackson Motor Speedway. Mm-hmm. And so, and I had a favorite dri- driver there by name of uh, Ralph Donaldson. And I'm trying to write all of this stuff into one chapter. It's like, how much is history and how much is Indy 500? And part of it was going to be about, one of the things I liked about the Indy 500 were the radio broadcasts in the 50s that are so good and so detailed and so so ritualistic. They did all the same things. They played back home again in Indiana and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it was just such a Midwestern ritual. So I wanted to write about listening to all those broadcasts while working in the yard the first weekend of summer, you know, sort of like Memorial Day, and you'd be out cutting the grass and, yeah. and have the radio in the backyard. And so that was part of the memoir thing. And then I want to talk about going to the races with my dad and watching Ralph Donaldson. Hmm. And uh, what I'd done in 1984, I just wondered, is this is in the 1950s. Yeah. And I'm now 67, 1984. It's like, is it possible he's still alive? So I looked up his phone number for Ralph Donaldson and Jackson. I just called them cold. Yeah. And uh, it's like you asking me if I'd do this. Well, I just, you know, (laughs) hello, is this Ralph Donaldson? He used to race at Jackson Motor Speedway. Yes, it is. I said, I used to watch you all the time. And this guy loved the fact that I'd called him. 
you know, he is now 84 years old. And uh, so I went and... Uh, Next time I went downstate that same year, 84, just after I talked to him, actually, I interviewed him. I talked to him for an hour on the phone. I took notes. And then I went and talked to him in person for two hours. Mm -hmm. And I took notes. And I said, next time I'm, I come down here, I'm going to stop in and say hello again. Well, that was in uh, 1985. He died okay. weeks after I talked to him the second time. Right. And... I'll be damned if I could figure out how I was supposed to work my talking to him. See, the whole book is set in the past. I had not broken that timeline to talk about the present. Right. But how could I not mention meeting Ralph Donaldson? Yeah. And uh, every time I tried to write this chapter, it just blew up in front of me. And hmm. I got tired and I got I got disgusted with my own failure to figure out how to write my way out of this problem. You know, I'm not a dumb right. guy, and it's not the world's most complicated problem, but yeah, I hadn't made it. So um, I just picked up the chapter again, and uh, I talked to somebody. Idly enough, I'd done a little consulting job with some people downstate about the copper country, actually, um, and history of it, and I'd you know, did a, not a podcast, but we did a Zoom meeting with me and people that were interested. Mm -hmm. And then I was talking to this gal, she's like 29, and she says, you working on anything? And I said, well, I had this car book. So she started scolding me for not writing this. Yeah. I thought, you know, she might be right. I haven't got that many years to go. I, if I'm going to finish this book, I got to, I got to get on it. Right. So I got back into it, and by God, I finally figured out how to do this. And right now I'm within about, three or four days of finishing that chapter. Yeah. But sometimes writing's easy and sometimes it's hard. Yeah. You know? But uh, it's fun that the people that you can meet and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Doing these stories. Like two nights ago, I talked to the race driver's daughter. Hmm. And she knew, and several people knew I'd interviewed him. And the main thing I wanted, I wanted to explain to her, like, this is why it took me, you know, so long to get this done. I thought the book was going to get published. They pulled the plug on it. Then I had this chapter, and I couldn't figure my way out. But I'm going to work on it. So, he, you know, you, you talk to her, and now I'm going to be talking to her brother, who's mm -hmm. also a race car driver. And he and his dad are the only father-son pair that, are in the Michigan Motorsports Hall of Fame, hmm. Ralph Donaldson and Denny Donaldson and so on. So I, I'm back to writing again, and I was smiling this morning because I finally figured out some other stuff. And uh, I mean, just to, here's the kind of facts you juggle as a historian. Car number 91 was Ralph Donaldson's best car, Jackson Motor Speedway, and he ran it when he was the track champion in 1956. And it had a drawing of Dopey from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs on the side of the car. Mm -hmm. And his nickname was Dinky. Huh. And I just worked in, where am I going to put in this little arcane bit of knowledge that he's the best driver at the track, he's the track champion, He's got one of the seven dwarfs painted on his car, and his name is Dinky, and the dwarf's name is Dopey. And I got this from talking to his daughter, that maybe the connection was 
you look at all the seven dwarfs, see who has the biggest ears. Yeah. Then look at a portrait of Ralph Donaldson. He's got big ears. Yeah. This guy had a sense of humor. Yeah. You know. Right. And it's painted right on his damn car. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff I get into is this little stuff. Right. That nobody writing a definitive history of him as a race car driver would pay any attention to this. Mm -hmm. But I do. And I pay attention to what he wore when he drove. This guy drove wearing moccasins. Right. You know, um, probably because of the light sole and you've got better feel for the pedal and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um Interesting stuff, but within a matter of days, I'll finally be have this chapter off my back. Yeah, well, that's unreal. Yeah, I, I'm somewhat coming at that from. I, I've been a big reader all my life, uh, but wasn't interested in writing. Like in high school English, I didn't care about it. Yeah, uh, I did whatever I had to do to pass the class. I was in math. I, I was a math guy. I didn't care about the writing side right. of things. But I've gotten to the point in my life where I've realized that reading is super powerful. Uh, you know, a powerful story, a fiction story, even not nonfiction story, whatever it might be. I've realized what the power of writing is and how it can be and how it can affect your life and change right. your life and give you insights into, into the world. Uh, so more recently I've been somewhat surprisingly engaged in the art of writing yeah. just from a, I can't quite explain it, but for some reason I find myself gripped towards that world. Sure. Uh, and I, as I'm reading your book, I'm, putting myself and not necessarily putting myself in your shoes, but I'm thinking to myself that to, I get the impression when you're writing that book, it's way more than just here's the historical facts. Like yeah. you are writing it for, that's why, that's why I asked that question. You're writing it for the, the joy of the art of writing as well right. compared to just telling the story of the history. Yeah. 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 There's no doubt about it. Um, and that's particularly true of the one I'm working on now that got stalled for 10 years because it's a memoir. Right. It's not, some chapters are less more, uh, less of a memoir than others. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got a chapter that compares automobile design and paint colors and stuff to the American kitchen in the 1950s. Sure. I mean, there's no difference between refrigerators and stoves from the 1950s and a Buick from the 1950s, hmm. you know. And by the way, General Motors made kitchen appliances, so it's, maybe it's not that surprising, but they're so connected in the use of color and the use of chrome and stuff. Mm -hmm. So there are chapters like that, but there are chapters like this, the one about automobile racing where, I, you know, I went with my dad. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so it's very personal. Yeah. For but, sure. But even this book that I'm reading right now, uh, Beyond the Boundaries, I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading this, you're, again, you're just laying out the facts. Here's this, here's this quote, but the order that you put them together, the little pre preface that you put before you put this newspaper uh, quote, the, the amount of stuff that you put in there really defines the story and it would be entirely different if it was somebody else looking at the same facts and putting it into that book versus you yeah. looking at those facts and putting right. it in that book. Uh, exactly. You know, the one thing um, people ask what you do as a historian or what you're good at or what you're not good at. And even in class, I would sometimes tell my students, you know, I can't, I'm not the world's best historian at telling you the big picture of American history. Hmm. I'm not sure about that. Right. Cause, but I do recognize that there have been very 
many different Americas since we were created, and there are many different types of Americans since we were created. Sure. And each one of them has this whole cluster of stories, and they're all damn different. Mm -hmm. My best strong suit was telling about the damn differences. Right. And tell the little stories. Yeah. And if, as a researcher, the one thing I've always been good at is sort of like Samuel Worth's Hill Black Satin Vest. Yeah. I'm just reading along and some some turn of phrase that somebody wrote in 1850 mm -hmm. just hits me. Right. And it just sets me off going there, you know. Yeah. Um Lucena Brockway after they move up here, she says the small word water is a big word to me. Hmm. And that started me thinking about Lake Superior and its effect on settlement up here and how scary it must have been for these people right. to come across Lake Superior, particularly if it was bad weather times and so mm -hmm. And uh, just all kinds of little things, you know. Right. Like you were talking about little moments that, you know, make a difference. Well, little sentences make a difference too. Yeah. What I think I've always been good at is reading somebody's letters or reading – a store account book or reading an annual report is just picking out that one little fact, that one little sentence that just really encapsulates so much. Right. If you just want to take that out and then blow it up and see what it really means. You know? Right, right. That's fun. I, I enjoy that. And reading your writing, I've enjoyed that as well. I'm going to give you two examples in this book right now, and it's super relevant to us right now. We've had a long, drawn-out spring, uh, and you were talking about travel into this area early on before the Sioux locks were here the lakes were right. frozen over once the winter set you were here i mean that was right. it uh and a newspaper had the uh, had in their one of their articles uh now don't go out and hang yourself for navigation will open sometime this spring <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> I, i'm about ready to hang myself this spring i'll right. tell you i was looking at a bunch of old ca uh, calendars my wife saves all of our calendars. I was looking at, I was trying to find out on exactly what dates did I go see this race driver in 1984 and 85. So I pulled out the 84 and 85 catalogs they've got. So I found out what I was looking for, but I also found out this cat, this thing that said all the snow has disappeared from our yard. Yeah. And it was a hell of a lot earlier in the year than we are right now in this year. Right. And I, that just broke my heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I was reading this two, three days ago and thinking that's just as relevant today. Well, obviously to the 10th degree for them, but still, right, we still right. feel those same feelings. Exactly. Uh, another thing are those early settlers. I, I laughed out loud about this. It was a guy, Cornelius Shaw. Do you remember this? Spending yep. time on Isle Royal. Uh, he hated the bugs and was afraid of being stranded there for the winter. And his quote, I couldn't stop laughing about this, his diary entry, out of tea, sugar, and molasses, women are ugly and mean. And mean. <laughs> I, well, how could you not put that in a book? I mean, those are those little snippets that I pick up. Right. And, uh, I, you know, you just have to use something like that. There's yeah. no doubt about it just captures that whole sentiment he had at that time. But yeah, that, that's what I'm saying about you selecting those quotes, I think does make a big right. difference, right? It adds to the yeah. whole flavor of everything that you've got going on with the whole story. Right. Right. Um, well, it's funny. I used to give a whole lot of after dinner talks up here because I was the, you know, I was the go-to man for a while on campus mm -hmm. because, you know, all these professional groups up here, they come up here and they have some annual meeting or something and then, 
they want somebody to talk. Right. And so, I, when particularly the first five or six or eight, ten years I was up here, uh, they'd call me and ask me if I'd give an after dinner talk. You know, well, I trade some of my time for a chicken dinner, sure. basically. And uh, I, I almost always said yes. I'm sure. And I'd go, I'd go, and the first, the first after dinner talk that I prepared may have been terribly inappropriate, but I would talk about mine safety. Yeah. Because that was something I just researched. I was the first guy up here to figure out how many people got killed up here and how they get killed and who got killed and all of that sort of stuff. It took me six months to find this stuff. And so I did this after-dinner talk on fatal accidents, and I finally decided, my God, there must be something that people can digest their food more easily if we're not talking about 1,900 miners dying underground. Um, so I just uh, I, I created another one. Hmm. It was called Water, Wind, and Winter. Mm-hmm. As the uh, as, as what sort of made this place? What? Excuse me. Water, woods, and winter. Sure. Water, woods, and winter. That's that's what this place was. Right. In the pioneer age. And so I would talk about that quote you just mentioned of Cornelia Shaw. Right. That would be in there. Yeah. Because woods, part of woods, I'd talk about <laughs> bugs, you know, and how bad the bugs were and stuff. And and water, I'd talk about that quote about uh, the word water, you know, is a, that was a hard word for Lucena Brockway and so forth. And uh, that started out as an after-dinner talk. And then I started thinking more and more about writing a book on the social history up here. Right. And Water, Woods, and Winter is now chapter one mm-hmm. in Beyond the Boundaries. Right. You know? Um, you know, it just was, it grabbed me for an after-dinner talk because it really sort of, painted a good picture of this place yeah and then it also was well geez it's a good introduction to a book on social history up here too so right i just turned it from a talk into a chapter yeah and i don't know if you had this intention when you wrote the book but what i'm taking away from it or what's really gripping me is the fact that these people had the same struggles of course, again, a lot of it's to the 10th degree of what we have, but they had the same needs, the same struggles, the same desire to have entertainment, the same, yeah. uh, really the same stuff we're dealing with. It's just 172 years ago. And it's, uh, of course, technology is a lot different, but there's still thriving companies. There's investors in New York. There's still all this stuff happening. That is the equivalent of today. It's just the technology is different, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, people are largely the same from one era to the next. It's just how do they meet their needs? That that changes a lot. Or or how do they find entertainment and amusement, you know, and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, you know, I was just, uh, before I came over here to talk with you, watching the Detroit Tigers-Minnesota uh, uh, Minnesota Twins baseball game on television. And, you know, this could have been July 4th weekend and, 1867 uh, or something, and they'd be playing baseball or Houghton's playing Hancock or Quincy's playing C&H. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of this stuff, you know, it's in different ways and different times and, you know, um, and common things about what, how did the people spend their holidays? Right. You know, what did they do? What did they do? You know, to find out that they were celebrating July 4th and things like that. Well, 
you know, these people in the 1840s and 50s weren't that far removed from the revolution. Right. You know, when you get down to it, it's a lot closer to them than it was to us. Yeah. So they would read the Declaration of Independence, you know, and things like that. And uh, eventually they'd play baseball on that day and they'd have uh, saffron cakes and things from the Cornish. And mm-hmm. and they would they would drink lemonade, fresh lemonade. Right. <laughs> and the funny thing about that is that this gal I said almost worked for us on the hair project, and then uh, who did come to join us and has written on uh, mine towns up here. I gave this talk once, and she says, "Ask me a question." I've been asked two embarrassing questions during my life. Yeah, where'd the lemons come from? Right. Oh uh, hell, if I know. I mean, it had to come from the south. <laughs> <laughs> obviously yeah. but i never did find any records about people buying lemons i got them once they get here right. you know they squeeze a bunch of them make a barrel of lemonade yeah and uh um i still don't know the answer to that question and once in a while we joke together about where the lemonades came right from. and uh, the other time i gave one of these after dinner talks and uh I must have covered the geology and part of the mining history talk and things like that. And this perfectly nice-appearing woman who's sitting there not too far from me at a dinner table, she raises her hand and I call on her and she says, how old are these rocks? And it's like, uh, my answer was, they're real old. Right. Because I didn't know yeah. how many millions and so forth of years the rock was up here. Right. And uh, I knew what it looked like. I knew it was harder to drill or easier to drill and all that. But I didn't know how old it is. But I went and found out. Right. And, you know, in one of my books, I talk about how old this stuff yeah. is. <laughs> they weren't going to catch me twice on that one. You can still get me on the lemons, though. I still don't know the answer to that. Right. Right. But. Yeah. Uh, I, the other thing I'll say about what is history is that besides reading dead people's mail and trying to string facts together to make a story, um, history is all about asking questions. Mm-hmm. You know, if you pick up a book on the history of the copper country because you're interested in the history of the copper country, um, you take whatever information you get and you're happy to get it. You mm-hmm. say, oh, that's nice. That's interesting. But the author of the book can't work like that. The author of the book, for every fact that's in there, had to ask a question. Right. What is this? What's that? When did that happen? Who did this? So historians have to ask questions. You know, in a book like Cradle of the Grave or something like that, I must have asked 10,000 questions to write that book. Yeah. And then the second question is, well, assuming it's a good question, well, like the question I asked, one of the early questions I asked myself was, how many people died up here mining copper? Mm-hmm. I asked that question to myself in 1978. And uh, then I said, well, that's a damn good question. That's an important question. Mm-hmm. And then the next question you ask is, well, how do I find that out? And then you go out and find what there are that tell you how many people died up here. Hmm. And then you spend six months looking at all those and keeping the data and all that kind of stuff. So, but there are also some really good questions that you can't find the answer to. Hmm. Um, And 
I can tell you how many people got killed up here in the 19th century, but I can't tell you how many people got injured seriously up here in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. They didn't keep that record. Hmm. So one of the things I have to do as a historian is ask questions, decide which ones are important, decide which ones you can actually find a good answer to. Yeah. And then don't sweat the rest because there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. If the records don't exist, they don't exist. That's all there is to it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, you know, you sit there tapping your finger on the desk and so forth thinking, what what would I look at to get the answer to that question? Is anything I've read up here tell me this? And if the answer is no, then write about something else. Mm-hmm. And you can't write a book talking about what you didn't learn. Right. I used to tell my students this all the time. They would, you know, they'd write little papers and something like that. And they'd say, well, I wondered about this, that, and the other thing, but I couldn't find information on it. I'd always write, don't tell me what you don't know. Tell me what you do know. Right. You know, and uh, that was advice I tried to follow myself. Yeah. So, but asking all those questions, right, you're asking the questions, but also I'm thinking about your trajectory uh, of in the English world, the history world, and and it's a life full of questions, right? Yeah. Have you always been inquisitive from, from a young age? Like I'm saying, to even get into that whole world, uh, have you always been the type to ask a lot of questions? I'm, I'm sure I was, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I was. I was always, uh, uh, you know, I was always a good student, and I was always, I was reading a lot as a child. Maybe I wasn't always reading the right stuff. Mm-hmm. After I'd read Tom Sawyer and all those books, instead of reading more kids' books, I went to the adult section of the Vandercook Library and was reading Luke Short's Western Raiders on the Rim Rock. I mean, right. I, this is one of those strange facts. <laughs> yeah. I remember what my childhood is like. I don't want to read these kid books. I want to read about Raiders on the Rim Rock by Luke Short, a famous American Western author. Right. Um, but yeah, I think I always was inquisitive, and I was always uh, interested in a wide range of stuff. Yeah, I, math was a real source of pride for me too. I prided myself on being able to do any math stuff they ever threw at us in mm-hmm. high school. Right, um, and the same sort of thing with science. You know, learn it, um, learn more than one way to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the other thing that, you know, I remember getting in an argument with my physics professor in high school because I came up with the right answer, but he didn't like the way I did it, so he didn't give me any credit for it. Hmm. My response to that was I crumbled up the damn exam and my hands into a ball and threw it away. Right. I wanted to let him know that I didn't respect his opinion right now. Right, right. right. So I got it right, damn it. Yeah. I did it my way, but I got it right, you know. Yeah. But uh, I think... Yeah, if you're not inquisitive, you can't do a good job. You yeah. got to have a fairly quick mind and a fairly uh, a mind that's open to lots of different things. Yeah, open to learning lots of different things too. Right. Yeah, I said when I started doing the history of mining, which then I ended up doing for like thirty some years or whatnot. Yeah, man, I didn't know any of this stuff. Right. You know. Yeah. No, I found a lifelong joy of of learning and. Yeah, it's just, it'd be hard to imagine a life without it. Yeah. You know? 
Right. Not that. Yeah. I just, I, I just, so I, I see that in you obviously as well, but I'm curious the, the autobiography you're diving back into that, that will be published. You think that that'll be, well, a- I'm, that's the, that's the, that's the aim of it. That's okay. what I started it doing. Uh, half of it's been done for over a decade. I mean, half 50 60% and occasionally I pick out a chapter just blindly and read it and I say to myself that's damn good I should do something with this hmm. there's only one chapter that's been written I don't like and uh, I'll have to whack at that when I when I go back at it um, but the rest of them I think are quite good I've got a, a chapter there that compares my experiences um, with those of the movie American Graffiti. Okay. It's grow, It's basically a teenage years in Danville, Illinois, hmm. and, uh, <clears throat> and the subculture of cruising and things like that and what was going on in Danville, Illinois, and how important the car was then to what kids did on the street and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, it's, that's a fun chapter to write because, Somehow or other, um, well, when I was a kid in 1958, I think, we needed a new second car, and I went with my dad to Lansing to look at the foreign cars because they didn't sell them in Jackson yet. Mm-hmm. You know, it was when there were foreign cars in one dealership, it would carry like five different kinds. And we went to Lansing, and he bought an Austin Healey Sprite, which is a little two-seater, so the bug-eyed Sprite. Mm-hmm. And he brought back a picture of it, showed my mom, and she just basically said, we ain't buying that damn car. And so my dad had to tuck his tail beneath his legs when we went back and we bought a four-door Hillman Minx because hmm. this had more room and you could carry the whole family and you could carry all the groceries. And it wasn't the sports car. So I think she denied my dad the only sports car I might have ever owned. <laughs> and uh, we had this Hillman Minx and then, um, he died shortly thereafter, being denied his sports car, and um, it was time for us to get rid of the Hillman Minx finally, replace the Hillman Minx, and we'd moved, and we're in Illinois, and my mom wants to get a new car, and she goes to the Pontiac dealership, and she's looking at a Pontiac Tempest. That was the compact, but they also had a Pontiac GTO on the showroom. Okay. I talked to my mom, who was this tiny little woman who weighed 100 pounds when she was the heaviest in her whole life, probably. Um, I talked her into buying a 1964 Pontiac GTO. Hmm. And uh, I think she did it because she felt guilty about not giving my dad his sports car. So, by God, she was always good to me, always very good. She gave me a GTO. Unreal. And there was nothing better than running around in high school in Illinois driving a Pontiac GTO while Ronnie and the Daytona song, Little GTO, was playing on their airways all the time. Right. So that's the kind of memory or memoir that I work into that chapter. Right. And uh, and then I I mentioned my friends and all the weird-ass things that we did. And yeah. then, I don't know if you remember, but in the uh, at the end of American Graffiti, they run a little thing about... They show the main characters again and what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And one of them is missing in Vietnam. And uh, one, the most conservative one who didn't leave home to do anything, he's an insurance agent. Mm-hmm. And um, one, oh God, 
One got killed in a car accident. He's the guy who stayed on the street too long and was a drag racer all the time. He finally paid the price by being killed. Mm-hmm. And the other one is uh, the lead character in American Graffiti. He does leave town. He does everything right. But the Vietnam War comes along and screws up his entire plans. He was going to go become a White House intern and go into politics and stuff. Vietnam War sent him to Canada. Hmm. He fled the country to go to Canada. Mm-hmm. And I always remembered that closing. I used to use American Graffiti in the automobile in America class every damn year. Hmm. Uh, and I talk about mobility in America and should you stay or should you go and all that. And so when I got done in my chapter and I talked about these kids, I said, you know, Doug became vice president of uh, Habitat for Humanity. Not bad. Hmm. <laughs> um, another one became vice president of an insurance company. Right. Another one became an engineer and was racing cars in California. Um, and my girlfriend got killed in an auto accident later on. So that's how you, you put together something like a movie and your own life. Yeah. And try to make sense of it all and have fun writing it out. So that the people you spent time with during that era, if they ever read this chapter, it'll make a lot of sense to them, you know? Mm-hmm. That's a good chapter. That one's done. That's been in the bag for a long time. It's just waiting to escape my yeah. drawer, you know, and right. get out get out in the free world as a book chapter. Yeah. And, uh, I'll be happy when it happens. I should live so long. I still got some. To, I still got, you know, chapters to finish. Yeah, but uh, it's fun thinking back on things like that. The next chapter I might tackle is um, boys' toys. You know, you don't just deal with the automobile and you become sixteen and get a driver's license. What about Tonka toys? What about slot car racing? What about? Um, go-karts what about model car building la da 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 we do have all this automotive stuff we play with as kids and stuff and it all adds up as part of the automobile culture yeah um interesting stuff i think anyway oh it's unreal yeah what's it like to write about your life like that to sit down and you've been a writer for a long time you've been engaged on a on a time scale like teaching right in that whole world you're very engaged in that what's it like to sit back and reflect and write about your life like that well this is the time that i've written most about it and uh it was real easy okay it was real easy um gets a little hard sometimes or gets a little emotional yeah sometimes but you know, it's easy to just jot down things that you want to cover in this period right. and, and things like that. And uh, it's the things that you remember. Part of this question, uh, I just talk about memory in this chapter I'm working on about automobile racing and remembering what I remember from interacting with my dad at car races and stuff. Mm-hmm. Is that it's interesting what you remember and what you don't remember. Right. Um, but once people are gone you're not making new memories you've only got the old ones some disappear but some stick around forever right and you try to pick those and work them into a story that will touch people yeah some way so 
I, I have found it generally, this was, if it hadn't gotten derailed by the fact that that publisher backed out because it was too autobiographical, it would have been the fastest book I ever produced. Hmm. And now it's the slowest because of that, because I just, I couldn't pick myself up after that. Right. So, but I'm curious, was it good that he denied it? Like, are you writing it with a new perspective now that you've had another 10 years to... Wow, that's an interesting question. Uh, good question. I don't think parts of it will change much. The part that might change the most is the chapter I'm working on right now. Yeah. Because um, that's very much a memoir of... Not going to the Indy 500 1953 with my dad and being left with the women on a farm in West Lebanon, Indiana to drink lemonade and ride a pony and how it pissed me off totally. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> and then all these memories of listening to the 500-mile race and stuff like that Yeah, um, in the early summer and how sort of meaningful it was as a ritual in our family, you know, and... Um, how good the radio broadcast was at, at painting pictures and things like that. One thing the radio guys did was you could, everybody, people follow races in part because they got a favorite racer. There are a couple of guys that are really interested and they want to know where the hell are they in this race? Mm -hmm. Don't just give me the top three or five. Right. You know, count the people down, you know, on lap 100. Right. You know, where is my boy? You know, um, and the radio was very good at that. And then I fault the early ABC television broadcastings started hmm. on Wide World of Sports because they were just terrible. Mm -hmm. They were terrible. I, I couldn't stand to watch them, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, and then you go to the Jackson stuff and uh, Jackson Motor Speedway stuff. You got to research the history of the track and the history of the guys that are there. And. Uh, and Ralph Donaldson's track champion, 1956, he's my man that I went and talked to, and then he, he largely disappears, and this whole other group of cars and new drivers comes in. Hmm. And uh, this is stuff I'm probably paying more attention to now than I would have 10 or 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, I put a lot of thought in they. <laughs> They paved the track. They did away with modified stock cars, and they went to super modified cars, which are one-of-a-kind cars that are largely hand-built. And a whole new generation of drivers came in. Mm -hmm. And I remember these guys, too. The most famous one was Gordon Johncock. Hmm. He, and he won the Indianapolis 500 twice, but he started racing at Jackson in 1958. Right. And I watched him run at Jackson, and... Uh, and his cousin Nolan Johncock and so forth. So, yeah, I think sometimes uh, when you put things down, then you you start thinking about different issues, different questions. Yeah. Um, how far can you take this chapter? And uh, and that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. But I'm curious, again, I asked you, what's it like to write a book about your life? I mean, it's an yeah. intertwined book of history and your life, right. whatever else, but... Uh, is it like, is it therapeutic or I, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it's, well, it's what, very intentional. You're sitting here writing down, Hey, here's my life, putting it in context. And you might yeah. realize things in that moment. You don't realize because of 
But now you do realize them because you're going through that yeah, exercise, right, right? right? At the time, you were just living. You right. weren't thinking about living. But now you're looking back on it, and you realize what the significance of some of this stuff is. Right. Uh, generally, it made me happy. Yeah. I mean, there are some sad stories in there. Um, there's no doubt about that. And uh, my dad dying when I was 13. Uh-huh. <laughs> I still tear up. Yeah. That's a hell of a long time ago. Right. But this is the case. The older I get, the more it means to me. Yeah. But I can realize now, putting this book together, how much of a change in our lives that made. It was just my mom and me. After that, and uh, I had a half-sister, but she was 13 years older than I was. She was out of the house by the time I was six. I mean, mm-hmm. we're still good friends, and I still visit her down in Jackson. She still lives there. Um, but generally, you deal with the sad stuff, but you also see what the consequences of it were or are. Mm-hmm. And, um, but for the most part, it's like happy, just remembering this stuff. Yeah, uh, You're glad that it's still... Is in your mind somewhere. Right. And I, and some of the chapters aren't that sort of touchy-feely. Some are not as much memoir as sort of history, even if there's some memoir in there. I mean, this boys and their toys thing. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about building models. I'll talk about Christmas presents I remember, uh, this the invisible engine that I got for Christmas, um, a 1955 uh, motor-controlled Ford that was black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, even before that, an older car that was not definable as any one make, but I remember getting that by the age of five and mm. it had a trunk that opened and tires came off and a little wrench and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you plug that in, and there'll be other things that I will write about, the rise of go-karting and so forth, even though I never had one that was part of it. Right. My answer to a go-kart was learning how to override the governor on our riding lawnmower. So when my f- folks are gone and I was like 10 years old, I'll be out racing around in the backyard and, hmm. and uh, <laughs> you know, holding the throttle more open than it's supposed to be with my yeah. right index <laughs> finger <laughs> raining over, you know, and I painted big wheel on the side like it was some kind of race car or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so I just enjoy putting all that together. Um, it's It was largely fun. Once in a while, you just tear up. Yeah. But sometimes you just laugh, too. And right. that's good. That's what life's about. It's one. Of, it's both of those things. Yeah. I wonder to myself, so I've been in sales for seven, eight years. Uh, first vehicle sales for three or four years, now real estate for three or four years. Uh, and in doing so, a lot of my clients have been folks that are retired, recently retired, or or yep. some amount down the road of retirement, just by the way life is. They were more likely to be the ones to buy new cars or whatever it might be. And in doing so, I'd always find myself really curious and asking them, like, how do you, how's retirement going? How do you enjoy it? Right. What's it like? Whatever else, just on a curiosity level. And, and I, I think it's that exposure that has made me I don't know what it is, but for some reason, I, I find myself constantly grasping with the fact that life is quick yeah. and life is short yeah. and you're there before you know it. So for some reason, I feel like I'm already introspective on uh, on realizing like the life I'm living now is 
like you said, you're just living, right? But these big things or these, the, like the, the life we're living is, is unbelievable. And I don't know quite how to say what I'm saying, but like you talking about some of those experiences you've had and how impactful they are on your life. Like I, f- I feel like I can feel that right now and feel that about myself 10 years ago, even though it was only 10 years ago too. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and everybody has that for their own life. That's why I think it's just so cool to hear about you and what that's like to write about your story and reflect upon that. Uh, I, I think there's just a, a, a really powerful thing to do that, to sit down and write about your life and, and really put it together. Well, I think what I'm doing is different from what most people do is most people don't reflect like that. Yeah. A memory might flash before them and they'll, they'll think about it for a second or smile or whatever they're going to do. And mm-hmm. then it, it just disappears again. Right. In this book, what I'm doing is I'm plucking stuff out. Yeah. The good and the bad. I'm plucking that stuff out and uh, and writing about it, and then it becomes more meaningful and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, not just to me, but anybody who knew me or anybody who lived there, or my kids. Right. I mean, this will be um, something they never saw. You know, this will be their dad growing up. Right. They've grown up, but they didn't know how I grew up right. that much. You know, and but there's a lot of that in there um, that I'll be glad that they get to see. Yeah. Have you read, I've talked about this book a lot, A River Runs Through It? No, I have not. I should, but I haven't. Okay. I'm not reading that much now because my eyes are so bad. Okay. That uh, if, if it's not in big print, yeah. I have trouble with it. It's just driving me crazy, to tell you the truth. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I, until this gal from downstate this professor scolded me for not finishing this book mm-hmm. one of the reasons i was avoiding it is just eye strain and staring at the computer and now i made the type larger there but it's not making my notes any bigger right. you know <laughs> yeah. i took these notes with ralph donaldson in 1984 and i'm sitting there looking at him so what in the world is that word right i mean i got this little note about this accident he had I think it was, uh, let's see, he retired in 65. So it was like 1962 or 1963. He went to run midgets in Missouri, and he was the fastest guy in time trials, and he won the four-lap chase, and he won the first heat, and then the feature race, he slid and went end over end and so forth and Hmm. uh, uh, was unconscious for 10 days. And I wrote down what he told me about where his injuries were, and I look at this first word and I'll be damned. I got a magnifying <laughs> glass on that word. Yeah. My hands are, dis- are deteriorating. My eyes are deteriorating. It's like, well, what is that word? And uh, so he's unconscious for 10 days. So he must have had a head injury, but I don't see the word head there. But I don't know if that little blob there is the word head either. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the reason I ask is <clears throat> Norman McLean, he's an artist out of Montana, uh, a world that I'm just pumped about, right? Right. Uh, and he writes a story about his life uh, reflecting back. You, you haven't watched the movie either? You're not familiar? No. Okay. Uh, reflect. It's all about this family. They're a fly fishing family. Fly fishing. Yeah, right, I know. Yeah. I've, I've almost watched it several times. I just haven't gotten there on, right. on 
it's a profound, profound yeah. story, but it's about fly fishing. The father's a, a priest or a minister, uh, and, and their life and fly fishing was him and his brother was almost equal to religion for them. Right. right, right. Uh, and he tells the story of him and his brother going through life and how his brother kind of went one trajectory. He went another trajectory. He was a professor. His brother was a, a newspaper, uh, editor lived more of a rough and tumble right. type life. Uh, but fly fishing always held them together. But also, it was a tool for him to view the world through. Uh, and he, he, his brother ends up passing away, uh, gets dumped in an alley after a bar fight or something like that. I mean, a horrible, horrible deal. Yeah. But him reflecting on that and telling his life story, it's such a powerful thing. And I think it's it's half poetry and it's half art. And I think partially reading that yeah. book is what really said, hey, I love the art of writing because yeah. it's such a profound book well, it right? makes you feel right. as well as think you yeah know. the best of it does both i right. think so i'm thinking about it through that lens and then thinking about your autobiography book and and i don't know if i don't know you have to make your own choice but i'm just thinking about the fact that i would be pumped to see you lean in on the personal side uh and reflect on that and have that be if it's not already more immersed into that whole book and yeah. i think that would add a, a cool component that's just me i would be pumped to hear about oh that. Yeah, yeah well i'm 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 easily pumped by the chapters that have more memoir in it. Yeah. Uh, some of those I wrote early. Right. Um, the Danville Graffiti one is like 100% memoir. Mm-hmm. But I talk about, um, and then I spin things off. I talk about uh, taking a trip with my dad and my mom didn't go. Right. Um, I don't even remember what chapter this is in now, but it's a, it's an important thing. Um, taking a chip, a trip from Jackson, and we went to Niagara Falls, and we went to Gettysburg, which was I was big on the history of the Civil War hmm. when I'm a kid, and I'm uh, ten and a half or so when we make this trip, and we go to Gettysburg. We spent time there and hired a guide to take us all around and. And then we went to where the Little League World Series was played in, you know, in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. It wasn't being played then. I just wanted to see the place because I was a big, I was a little leaguer and I loved baseball more than any other sport. So I had to go there. So my dad took me there. And then we went down to Washington, D.C. and did the mall and the, the things. And then we went back on like US 40 or something like that and uh, went to a college he used to go to, Washington and Jefferson. And uh, and he went down to the the athletic department and stuff to look around. And the guy who was equipment manager when my dad played there, hmm. like in the very early 1920s. Now this is like 1958. He was still there, and he remembered my dad. Unreal. And the interesting thing is, he said that my dad was the best kicker he ever saw at that university. Mm-hmm. Well, he was a kicker. I knew that. My dad had told me that. And in an article about what he played at what's now Wayne State, my dad went to three colleges to play football. He never graduated from any of them. (laughs) And I don't know what he studied other than he played football for three different places. What's now Wayne State, what's Alma, and then this Washington and Jefferson place. Mm -hmm. And... uh, um, I'm thinking, how did he end up at Washington and Jefferson? 
I mean, this is just a sort of me thinking about it again. How did my dad from Detroit end up there? Right. As the third school he'd gone to play at. And this guy says he's the best kicker he'd seen there. Hmm. And I'm thinking, this is just a piss-and school. But a couple of years before my dad went there, this team actually played in the Rose Bowl against Stanford. And they only took like 11 or 12 players out there, and they tied it 0-0, I think, <laughs> in the Rose Bowl. <laughs> And uh, the the school was then coached by John Heisman of the Heisman Trophy fame. And then they also had claims that they were paying players to come there. Okay. Now, I wish my dad were alive so I could say, did they actually give you an incentive to go there as a kicker? Right. I mean, the Wayne State thing says he's a great kicker. Now, this guy remembers him 30 years later. Right. And uh, <laughs> that sort of stuff. And so then we went from there to uh, a family farm down in Indiana, and then we finally came home and that stuff. But that's where you sort of work in. This one's largely about my dad, mm-hmm. you know, and, and some of his background and and, uh, and that kind of stuff. Right. It's funny what you can find on the internet these days and what you can't find, but I was surprised that I could find so much about football teams that he had played on, you know, where he gets listed on the roster and, yeah. and all that kind of thing. Right. It's uh, This has been unreal. I'm really glad we got to talk. <laughs> well, good. I've had fun. I hope I don't bore your listeners to death. I have a tendency to, if you ask me a 20-second you know, question. I'll give you a twenty-minute answer. That's always been one of my faults. But. Yeah, yeah. No, I no, I really enjoyed it. I mean, hearing about the history side of things, which we could have, we could go on for days and days, right, with the amount of content of the local history. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I, but a lot of what I'm curious on in this whole podcast is again is what are you into? Which is that history side of things, the automobile side of things. But like, how did you get there? What has that meant for you? How has that changed your life? Uh, and then also, again, for some reason, the writing side of things, I can't stop thinking about. So yeah. when I'm reading your books uh, or even just talking about it, it's, it, yeah, uh, exciting to hear. Yeah. Well, you just keep talking away at it because I'm working on this. Uh, hang on. Yeah. We've been talking long enough. I got yeah. a little blood sugar. <laughs> and we can get off here, too, if you no, need that's, to. I'm not going to die. Yeah. I got two little pieces of candy in my pocket anyway. Yep. Just one of those things you live with. That's probably why my eyes are bad and other stuff. But yeah, uh, it's uh, you know, I mean, like the automobile. I've always been interested in automobiles. Yeah, and and it goes back to, I was a kid from southeastern Michigan. You know, this is Jackson. Now they weren't building much in the way of cars. They still had a few car manufacturers going on when I was very young there. Right, but. My God, cars were the world in southeastern Michigan. This is Detroit. This is the Motor City. You yeah. Know? When we went to ball games, my dad and a friend and his kid and me, we'd drive into Detroit, and he'd take Chevrolets and I'd take Fords, and we could <laughs> count them to see who had the most cars getting to the Detroit city limits. Yeah. You know, that's uh, – I mean, everything was cars back then. We went out every new every year when the new cars came out. My dad took me down to all the showrooms in, in Jackson, and we'd look through the big plate glass windows at the at the new models as soon as they came out and stuff like that. Um, just in innumerable ways, automobiles had always, uh, you know, been important. Yeah. Was dirt track racing ever a thing you followed? Yeah, that's what was going on at Jackson. 
Okay. What it was a three eighths mile um, banked track. Yeah. Dirt track. Now they paved it in uh, like September of 1958, but I saw a lot of the dirt track racing before then. Okay. And um, it was a good track. They drew some some of the best drivers in Michigan and Indiana and stuff. It was high banked. You know, before the two feature races, the sort of consolation feature and then the main feature, they had an intermission. So you could go down to the track and talk to the drivers and stuff. I still remember the uh, the turns one and two are banked at like 30 degrees. They're pretty damn steep. Hmm. You know, it's oiled clay. Right. And I can still remember having to keep up with my feet. You know how that goes when you're going down a steep hill and you have to oh, yeah. sort of move faster to keep up with your feet. Going down there to see and... And the one end of the track was banked, you know, at 30 degrees, or, and the other one's banked at like 8. Huh. So the, the, the two ends of this race course were yeah. totally different. Right. And they didn't have any guardrails on top. And so the racers, if they just lost it, you know, if you lost the rear end and started to spin or something, many of them just went over the top, and they just disappeared. I yeah. mean, even if you're sitting at the top of the grandstands where my dad liked to sit a lot, if they went over the top of the, you know, curve, you couldn't see them at all. You just hope they showed up again at some point. Right. And, and um, I think I saw one guy get killed who went over the top. Unreal. I, I remember that. I can't put a date on it exactly. But during the time I was there watching, at least four drivers got killed. Yeah. Um, but it was a, a dirt track until they paved it in in 58 and uh a guy like donaldson who was a dirt track racer he didn't like it after they they paved it it, it ruined it for him and yeah. he thought for other guys too um so he went to racing sprint cars on dirt for the rest of his career huh when i lived in dickinson north dakota they still had a dirt track out there yeah uh and one of the sales guys that i worked with at that chevy and cadillac dealership a legendary guy ken was his name uh, 73 years old, but he was a dirt track racer, lived yeah. for it. I mean, the, and he, it was a whole culture. They used to say that the joke they would tell me is that they went to a race. They, they would say, hey, you went to a race and a fight broke out. But then they would joke and say, actually, you went to a fight and a race broke out. Yeah. <laughs> but they, uh, yeah, I convinced me to go to a couple of these races. It's a cool scene. Oh, it was. It was. I mean, I was just enthralled with it. it was so it was, what the hell is the most exciting thing you went to in Jackson? I yeah. Mean, I mean, my dad, God bless his heart, he took me to a lot of things. He really did. Um, and sometimes looking back, I don't even know why he took me. He took me once on a trip where he took me to a, a steel company in, like, Grand Rapids because the dyes that they were using for his company were cracking. Yeah. And so they wanted to take the dyes there to have them work. My dad took me on that trip. I don't hmm. No wonder I wanted to be an engineer, I guess. I yeah. mean, maybe it was, but uh, that was a, a case of uh, looking back on it. It's like, geez, uh, that's interesting. He took me to that. But he took me to softball games and all that kind of stuff. That was big in Jackson, too. Yeah. Um, but we went to these races pretty, pretty religiously. He didn't take me to Indy 553. Yeah. And that sticks out still. I know, I, uh, I know, it always uh, does. I even before I was writing this book, I've never forgotten that. And uh, um, I did learn one new thing about that, though, is that 
There was a death at Indianapolis in 1953. It was the hottest 500 they had ever run. It was 93 degrees that day in Indianapolis. And the heat got to several drivers. And it got to this one driver, and he died of heat prostration. The guy who died in 53 won the first feature ever run at Jackson Motor Speedway Hmm. in in 1949. So there's just that strange connection between these these two things yeah um that i'd never you know you start doing research and you never know what the hell's gonna pop out right all of a sudden you can't find what you're looking for but you find something else out that's kind of interesting um you try to make some sense of it i still haven't figured out a way to work that into to this manuscript but i might yet it's not done yet right but no, I'll be excited. I'll stay in touch with you. I want to. I want to read it when it's done. Yeah. Well, um, once I get back on it, this chapter is the hardest one. I think the other ones, uh, I might have to do more research on them. Um, I mean, I've got files of collected Xeroxes and stuff ready to go. But, mm-hmm. uh, they might go f- as fast as the early chapters that I wrote a long time ago. Yeah. That would be nice if they did. Right. Um, I'm curious if you were, because this is just a, a the book that I've been just raving about lately, or even the movie. The movie does a good job. The river runs through it. I'm curious if yeah. you were to watch or read that, would it give you any insight or inspiration and, and, and potentially add uh, yeah, well, inspiration towards the, your I, current I, book? I see what's yeah. going on there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's when something becomes more than what it is. Yeah. You know? It becomes ritual. It becomes uh, sort of a core part of your being, or something like that. Right. But, and but the power too is the reflection on the personal side. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But no, this is unreal, Larry. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, I hope uh, we didn't put the whole world to sleep. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I'm having fun. That's good. Well, yeah. that's all that counts after all. Right. You know, I had right. fun too. It's enjoying talking about this stuff, um, just particularly since I'm trying to get back in the saddle again. I mean, I was writing this morning, Yeah. and I was smiling as I did it because, by God, I figured out a couple of problems that I had and squeezed them into where the manuscript now exists and so forth and got got some other stuff ready to plug in too and— I'll be really glad to get this chapter done. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see it when it comes out. Will do. Yeah. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity to chat away. (laughs) Hey, guys. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have and you feel so inclined, share this podcast with your friends, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and give us some feedback with a review. Until next time, thank you.